The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 15 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC15. This is Secret Church 15, Episode 8. Last two issues, ethnicity and immigration, liberty and persecution. Ethnicity and immigration, race, racism, all kinds of dialogues, speeches about how to solve racial tension in our culture. It's not something outside of us. It's inside of us. This is where I think about my own life. I walk into a room and I see two tables, one with a group of people who are ethnically like me, one with the people who are not ethnically like me. I am prone to go here to those who are like me. Because something in me almost is prone to think that's safer, that's more comfortable for me, and maybe this is less safe or less comfortable for me. And when I think about that tendency in my own heart, I realize that, uh, that racism really is not a matter of whether or not we're tempted or prone to these things in our hearts. It's really, when I think about racists, or, and I almost think of them outside of me, I really realize the difference between me and them is often one more of degree than of kind. There's a tendency in this in all of us that we've got to confront. So think about conversations about race in our culture today, from Trayvon Martin to Ferguson to New York City. We're, we're talking about race, but could it be we're grasping for solutions to a problem we grossly misdefined from the start? Think about how the gospel reshapes the conversation about race. From the very beginning, the Bible depicts a basic unity behind worldly diversity. There's got unity in Genesis 1, made in the image of God. Genesis 10 expands on that with clans and languages and lands and nations. All of these divisions, though, tracing their human ancestry back to one family, Noah and his sons, who trace their human ancestry back to Adam and Eve, which is why Paul in the New Testament tells the philosophers in Athens he made from one man every nation of mankind. So then, in light of that picture, in the beginning of the Bible, ask the common questions. Well, what race were Adam and Eve? And the answer is both obvious and simple at the same time. They were the human race. You ask, what color was their skin? And as soon as we ask that question, we realize there's a problem with it on two levels. One, we don't know the answer to that question because the Bible doesn't tell us. Now, in most uh, Bibles in the West, we painted a picture of Adam and Eve as white. We have no basis whatsoever for that assumption. For all we know, they could have been any color, different colors for that matter. Maybe Eve's Eve's skin was the shade of dirt or bone. If anything, genetics would point to the greater possibility that our first parents had darker skin because it's the dominant gene in skin, skin color. But regardless, we find ourselves talking about people in terms the Bible doesn't even use. We make the obvious deduction. God's word doesn't tell us what color Adam and Eve were because apparently God's word doesn't equate membership in the human race with skin tone. Whatever color Adam and Eve and their children were, they contained in them a DNA designed by God that would eventually develop in a multicolored family across a multicultural world. So fundamentally, God's word reminds us, regardless of the color of our skin, all of us have the same roots as part of the same race. And so we come to the conclusion to discuss diversity in terms of different races actually undercuts unity in the human race, which is not just an issue of semantics because much of our conversation about race is biblically unhelpful. It locates identity in physical appearance. You're black, I'm white. Statements that seem simple, 
But more than that, or more than mere indicators of skin color, they oftentimes carry a whole host of stereotypes and assumptions with them. So simply because skin color or hair texture is a certain way, we assume certain characteristics about others, positively or negatively, most often negatively, which is unhelpful. And then our conversation about race becomes practically impossible when somebody doesn't fit into our color color classifications. Think about a good friend of mine, Derek, who used to serve on staff at Brook Hills and was sent out to pastor a church north of here, who's mom is white, dad is black. So what is Derek? What race is he? What category do we put him in? What assumptions do we approach him with? And that categorization becomes all the more impossible in light of globalization in the world. This quote from Tabidi Anyabwile, friend of mine, uh, as a black man, explains the hopelessness of using race to distinguish men and women. He writes, my barber in the Caribbean, he was living in uh, Grand Cayman as he wrote this, uh, looks just like me. You'd think he was an African-American until he opens his mouth. When he speaks, he, sees, he speaks Jamaican Jamaican Patois, so it's clear that he's not an African-American. My administrative assistant is also proudly Jamaican, very white-skinned. The lady in my barbership looks a lot like my wife. You might think she's African-American or even Caymanian. She's Honduran. This notion of artificially imposing categories on people according to color biology is sheer folly. It's an impossibility. This is why much of the field of race and ethnicity has largely abandoned the attempt to identify men based on biological categories of race. When we recognize this, we realize that to discuss diversity in terms of different races actually undercuts the goal of the gospel, which is ultimately Revelation 7, to unite men and women from every nation, tribe, people, and language as one race before God. So we realize the gospel itself actually reshapes the conversation about race and redefines that conversation around redemption. This is where the Bible grounds our understanding of human diversity and human ethnicity. See the word in light of different ethnicities, which is far more than just about biology or skin tone or hair texture. Ethnicity encompasses social distinctions. We see in places like Acts 21, lingual distinctions, Acts 2, historical distinctions like between the Moabites and the Israelites in the Old Testament, political distinctions, religious distinctions that were the core of the differences between Jews and Samaritans, for example, down in John 4, all those factor into distinguishing different peoples, different languages, different history, different different, uh, different uh, political distinction. All these things factor into this notion of ethnicity. And then you begin to look at the globalization of the world, even here in uh, Birmingham. Birmingham, Alabama is not the most diverse place in the world. But we had a group go out from uh, the Church of Brookhills not long ago, and on one weekend just interacted, just trying to find different people of different ethnicities and found Thai, Filipino, Vietnamese, Punjabi, Gujarati, Colombian, Salvadorian, Palestinian Arab, Jordanian Arab, Northern Yemeni Arab, and Moroccan Arab people, just to name a few. Not the most diverse city in the world, but all kinds of diverse ethnicities. So see the word and see the world in light of diverse ethnicities. Yes, there's approximately 100, 200 geopolitical nations identified in the world, but in those nations, there are multiple thousands of ethno-linguistic groups, people groups, united by factors like common language, common ethnicity, common self-identity. The International Mission Board, which I have the privilege of leading, identifies over 11,000 people groups in the world. So then, with this view, the word, the world in light of different ethnicities, see our sin in light of ethnic animosity. Just as soon as God's word introduces diverse types of people, we see selfish pride and ethnic prejudice between those people, mistreating one another. Pages of the Bible and human history are filled with that. There's an evil affinity toward ethnic animosity that resides in all of our sinful hearts. 
So hear the gospel. See the the promise God has made. From the very beginning, Genesis 10, followed right right up by Genesis 12, God promises that one day he's going to bring his blessing to all the peoples of the earth. This kingdom, Jesus says, uh, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all the ethne, all the nations, and then the end will come, which is why Jesus commands his disciples, Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all the nations so that they will all stand before the throne and praise God for his salvation, which leads to this, the promise God's made, the price Christ has paid, clear testimony of scripture is that Jesus has shed his blood for every people, for every language, which leads to the whole place God has prepared in heaven, new heaven and new earth, where we will worship together in perfect harmony, which means then, in the present, we must now work together for unity in our diversity. This is the goal of God in all history, to bring together the human race comprised of languages, nations, tribes around his throne to give him the praise that he's due for the salvation and the grace that he brings. If that's the goal of God in all history, then certainly it must be our goal, part of our goal, living in this world in whatever culture we live in. So we reform our lives around reconciliation. We work toward ethnic harmony in light of God's purpose in history, which means we acknowledge our distinction. It's not that we ignore the history of how one ethnic group has treated another. We ignore our distinctions in this way or that way. We appreciate our differences. When I think about people of different ethnicities who have had influences in my life, I realize such massive influences in my life, both here in Birmingham and around the world, I realize collective impact me on me, we shape and sharpen one another, not in spite of our differences, but precisely because of our differences. God's created us in different ways, in ways that are hugely helpful for all of us. In Christ, we affirm our, dig- our dignity while acknowledging our diversity. So practically, what does that mean? It means we strive for ecclesiological unity for the sake of God's glory in the world. In other words, we, try, we strive for unity in the church for the sake of God's glory in the world. God's, God is most glorified when his people are most unified. And that means there is no place for ethnocentric pride among God's people which is why Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 2, 3, he is talking about how we have one father, one family, one household. He's, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility based upon ethnic diversity. There's no place for ethnocentric pride among God's people and no place for ethnocentric preference in the midst of God's people. No partiality according to ethnicity or anything else, James 2 says. So this, is, this reshapes the way we think, not just about racism, but immigration, a hot button issue in American culture right now that's oftentimes disconnected from this discussion. But if the cross compels unity across ethnic divisions, across ethnic divisions, then how much more should we as the people of God care for immigrants from other countries in our midst? Christ compels us as Christians to care for immigrants in the world around us. Surely majority, of oppre- majority oppression of migrant people is no better than white segregation of black people. Again, this is another issue we're prone to relegate solely to the political sphere or in our personal lives. We don't think about how the gospel affects this. Russell Moore writes that the Christian response to immigrant neighbors has basically been like saying, you, get off, you kids get off my lawn in Spanish. But we've got to see that this is, before this is a political issue, immigration is a God issue. We need to see the heart of God in Scripture. The Lord watches over the sojourners, Psalm 146.9. He loves the sojourner, Deuteronomy 10. We need to see the heart of God in Scripture, and then we must apply the Word of God in our culture to see immigrants as men and women made in the image of God. They are not problems to be solved. They are people to be loved. As we love ourselves, Luke 10 says, 
So we stand for immigrants as men and women in need of the mercy of God, which means we respect their personal dignity. We decry any and all forms of oppression, exploitation, bigotry, or harassment. This is not political. We're not compelled to do this politically. We're compelled to do this by the gospel among immigrants. We protect their family, familial unity. We work to keep husbands and wives and moms and dads and children together. Now the challenge is politically, how do you do all this in light of out-of-date legislation that's out of sync with our current labor market? Obviously, there's challenges there that don't provide easy answers, but we have a responsibility before God as citizens under a government to work together to establish and enforce just laws that address immigration in those waves. We have responsibility before God as citizens under a government to work together to remove and refute unjust laws that oppress immigrants. And if we fail to act in those ways, we're settling for injustice and living out of sync with the gospel in our culture. After all, as we, law, as we live in this world, we live as immigrants ourselves looking for a world to come. This is the essence of what it means to Christ, be a Christian in the first place. The Bible calls believers in Christ sojourners, exiles, who are looking for a better country, seeking a homeland, a city that's to come. In other words, Christians, as migrants on this earth, the more we get involved in the lives of immigrants, the better we will understand the gospel. And when you put this issue of immigration in the context of ethnicity, you realize that the body of Christ is intended by God to be in a multicultural citizenry of an otherworldly kingdom. And so as citizens of that kingdom, we care for all people, regardless of ethnicity or status in this ever-changing country. By God's grace, we counter selfish pride and ethnic prejudice in our hearts and in our culture, knowing that this is not the culture to which we ultimately belong. We're looking forward to the day when a great multitude of no one can count from every nation, all tribes and languages will stand as one redeemed race to give glory to our Father, who now no longer calls us sojourners and exiles, but sons and daughters. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.